0: You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. This evening's reading comes from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into content the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen the great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased the joy, the rejoice that before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of this burden and the staff Of the increase of his government and of peace, there would be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from the time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Um, (laughs) This is the word of the Lord. (laughs) Our Father, we are thankful for your
1: word. Uh, We're thankful for the coming of Christ and of his kingdom of which will have no end. So Father, now as we turn our attention now to your word, we pray that you would fix our gaze and our praise and our worship firmly on the sun. And we thank you for this time this evening and for your word to sit under in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, this is a torch week. If you're a fourth through sixth grader I want to head out with Patrick and Gail and talk about this Advent season. This is the uh, second Sunday of Advent. Uh, Even though uh, we didn't officially kick it off last week, we were nevertheless really glad to have Mr. V with us to preach from Romans 10. What a challenge that was for me and for all of us of what the gospel is that God has given. to us and to the world. Uh, historically, here at Christ Church, we typically go through the uh, four weeks of Advent using the traditional Advent themes of hope and joy and peace and love. You'll actually see, I think, First Night of Methodists has done hope and peace. They've got two of their banners up. Uh, Though last month, I learned that these traditional themes are a relatively new uh, development in the history of the church, the real traditional, themes of Advent are, get this, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Uh, We'll maybe do those themes some (laughs) year through Advent. Uh, This year, though, rather than tracing through those four themes, we're going to consider three sections of three chapters through the book of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah is like the magnum opus of the Old Testament. It's like the Romans of the Old Testament, and it's not just uh, the length of this book that has thus far intimidated me enough from like preaching through the entirety of that book. I just feel like I need a, a couple of decades of preaching under my belt and many decades of like, knowing and loving God uh, before, we, before I personally ever bite off preaching through Isaiah. Uh, but maybe we can just take it in small chunks every now and then, like we did last year in Romans. Romans 8, we did four weeks in that chapter. Uh, so th- I'm really excited about these three weeks. Um, but why? Why Isaiah? for Advent. Well, for several reasons. First of all, uh, what you just heard from Isaiah 9 is typically a Christmas passage. Uh, You perhaps uh, heard Handel's Messiah tumbling around in your head as David got to that part. Uh, But also, uh, Advent, the word Advent, it just means arrival. Uh, It's the time where we stop with intentionality to expectantly remember Jesus's first arrival, his first coming, his incarnation, when the, where God took on flesh and was born among us. And Isaiah, perhaps more than any other book in the Bible, looks forward to the coming of Christ and of his kingdom. Second though, Isaiah is very much a book of hope. Isaiah seems to be If you read through this and were paying attention to tenses, past, present, and future tenses, you might think Isaiah is really mixed up, like a lot. Uh, He seems to be really jumbled up in the timeline. He writes of past things as if they're present. He writes of future things as if they're past, future things as if they're happening right now. And this is what Advent has come to do. Advent suspends us in time, and it reminds us of past, present, and future. It reminds us that if the past is fixed and true, then the future is equally fixed and true. And so in Isaiah, even though the present circumstances that are surrounding Isaiah uh, look very, very hopeless, he is, nevertheless, filled with hope. But third and lastly, in considering everything that Mr. V preached from in Romans 10 last week, Isaiah is very much a book that is concerned about the nations, concerned about the entire world being filled with God's glory. So today we're going to consider just the first seven verses of Isaiah 9, and then in the next two weeks we'll think through a, a, a smaller sections of chapter 40 and chapter 42. It's just a taste of this wonderful book. Um, But one contrasting theme that Isaiah will build through the entirety of the book is that of light and of darkness. So tonight we're going to think through chapter 9, or these first seven verses of chapter 9, in two halves, and that of the uncertainty of darkness and the clarity of light. So first of all, the uncertainty of darkness. Well, I can't spend the time needed to give like the full context uh, that's surrounding this book. Let me just give you a little bit here so that we don't, we don't just like parachute in and like land on the ground of Isaiah and have no idea where we've landed. Uh, at the time of Isaiah, we're about 200 years past the reign of Solomon, which was the, like the high watermark mark of Israel's history. But after Solomon died, two of his sons split the kingdom into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern, the ten northern tribes, you'll often read of as Ephraim or just Israel, whereas the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, you'll often just read of as Judah. The northern northern nation of Israel and the southern nation of Judah. And Isaiah is here living and writing in the south. He is writing in Jerusalem where uh, over the course of the book, he is speaking to and towards several generations of Judah's kings. He apparently uh, has a, uh, a, a pretty significant place in the royal palace. He's got, he's got the kings at many of their ears. And the events beginning in chapter seven are, in, are like, this. all of them are surrounding the political crisis of the day. The Assyrian Empire is building over the horizon. To Israel and Judah, it must have been like the darkness of Mordor out there. It's just building. Like they can't see what it is out there, but they know that something is coming. They're hearing rumors and they know that it is coming. The uh, the political and military machine, unlike anything that the world had thus far seen, is looming. So Israel— the northern nation, Israel in the north, they joined forces with another small nation called Syria to prepare for what is coming with Assyria. Israel and Syria begin demanding that the southern small nation of Judah join them in an alliance against uh, Assyria. And if not, then Israel and Syria will invade Judah, invade Jerusalem, and take them out before even the Assyrians can do it. So the prophet Isaiah comes to the king of Judah, King Ahaz, in chapters 7, 8, 9, and following, to tell him, don't do that. Don't become allies with these wicked kings, the wicked kings of Israel and of Syria. As the old illustration goes, it doesn't do any good for a mouse to make an alliance with a couple of untrustworthy and slimy rats when a cat is coming. Like, you're all going to get eaten in the end by the cat. You need someone to stop the cat. And the rats ain't going to do it. So Isaiah comes to Ahaz asking him, O king, will you trust the Lord? Will you trust God? Do you believe that God exists when things look very dark? Do you believe in his promises when the darkness seems at its very darkest? At the moment of crisis will you instead begin immediately looking for your own way out? Start making your own strategies so that you actually do not need to trust in anyone except for your uh, own ill-conceived and useless plans. And this, in fact, is the question of Advent for us all. Does God actually exist? Is the idea of God just an idea? Or does he exist? Is there a God? And just as Judah sat here in the darkness with Assyria over the horizon, 700 years later, Judah would sit not in coming darkness, but in the current darkness of an even darker darkness, that of Rome, wondering Is God actually here? Does he exist? Will he do anything about all of this suffering? Are the promises still true? Will he be good to us? And so perhaps now leading up to these few weeks before Christmas, you might find yourself in a similar situation with darkness over the horizon, or perhaps you're sitting squarely in it right now, Maybe you find yourself in financial difficulty where there doesn't seem to be any way out. Maybe you find yourself in such loneliness or sadness or grief that you can't ever imagine being happy again. Maybe you find yourself in such anxiety or depression that you can't imagine ever finding hope again. Maybe there is some conflict that you can't ever imagine finding reconciliation or resolution in again. Maybe you find yourself actually busy and successful. But through taking time and intentional thinking of the coming of Christ in this season of Advent, that this kind of thinking actually reveals that life is actually much more dark and less meaningful than you had thought. And in thinking through the coming of Christ, you realize I have put too much hope in this present kingdom. Any of these ways though you find yourself in darkness and you wonder is God actually there? Does he exist? Will he ever do anything? And the last verse of Isaiah 8 becomes then your reality. Isaiah 8:22 and they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. When things are dark, you feel helpless, you feel lost, you maybe even feel guilty for stumbling around in the darkness, not making the kind of progress that you would have hoped to have made, because you don't even know which direction is progress. But then this is where, as Ray Ortland says, Isaiah walks up to us and he taps us on the shoulder as we struggle with our problems and he says, you know, there's another way to look at all this. Are you interested? So no matter the darkness of chapter 8, the scene then changes in chapter 9. Out of the uncertainty of darkness then comes the very clear clarity of light. Chapter 9, verse 1. Where Isaiah says to the king, he says to King Ahaz, he says, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. These are tribes in the north. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the Israel's front door, the place that would be invaded first, which would be first to experience the darkness, is actually going to be the doorway for the rest of the world to be inhabited by the light and glory of God. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And here's where we start getting into some time confusion. Maybe Isaiah is like some Doctor Who time lord or something, where he has the ability to just like bounce around from centuries to see all of the, the scope and time of what God might be up to. And then he's like forgotten in which time he is now speaking to Ahaz. He's talking to Ahaz as if he's a couple of hundreds, a hundred years later, but he's speaking like it's the present. He's forgotten when he is. Because it sure looks like darkness. Assyria is building and coming, and the rats, though smaller than the cats, are still dangerous to the mouse. But he says, everyone who is in darkness has seen a great light. you see that in verse 2? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Because what happens when light enters darkness? When light enters darkness, there's not this like existential struggle of which one is stronger. Like when you're in the darkest cave, even a dim and dying flashlight that is on its just last juice of battery, like if you took that flashlight out into a... A noonday, sunny day, you couldn't even tell it was on. But if you took that flashlight into a dark, dark cave, even that flashlight can illuminate the entire cave. And Isaiah is saying that that has happened. The light has come into the dark land. And not just a dim flashlight, but like a high-powered LED light. A great light. Like the light of the sun. That light has come and shone on the darkness. But which is it? Is there overwhelming darkness, or is there great light? It sure looks like darkness. When are we talking about here, Isaiah? Well, perhaps thinking about Isaiah as a time lord isn't too far off. While he himself doesn't travel through time, throughout the book, God is giving him vision after vision after vision of the past, present, and of the future. And just like when Ebenezer Scrooge sees the future, it very much changes his present Isaiah is speaking about the future with such fixed certainty that it might as well be the present or it might as well even be the past. So Isaiah comes to King Ahaz and he taps him on the shoulder and he says, you know, there is nothing but darkness out there. I know, but there's another way of looking at all this, you know, God does exist. He is not silent. The darkness will not overcome you because the light is real and it is coming. And because it is coming, it is as good as done. And it even gets better. Verses 3 and 4 and 5, God will completely destroy the enemies of his people. Like Gideon of old, who destroyed the Midianites. God will remove not only the darkness and the violence and the injustice, but he will remove the threat of darkness. He will one day remove the sadness and the doubt and the anxiety and the depression and the worry. Altogether, he will surely do it. There is great light. There is multiplied joy as in the days of the harvest, when there is just abundance and plenty. The yoke of burden has been lifted. The rod of oppression has been broken. There is judgment on enemies. How? Ahaz must must be thinking, yeah, I like this. I really like this. Maybe he's going to use me to do all of this. Maybe God will raise me up like some Samson-like figure to fight and to lead and to conquer, maybe like Gideon and smash the, the, the Midianites. But the story of Gideon here is perhaps helpful because it wasn't Gideon's strength that did it. In the book of Judges, God keeps narrowing and narrowing and narrowing the, the army that Gideon has to fight so that it is actually weakness that wins. So that it is actually God who delivers his people, not them who deliver themselves. Because then verse 6 comes like a record scratch. It is not Samson or it is not Gideon that God is going to send to rescue his people. Verse 6, for to us a child is born. Ray Ortland says, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. His answer to the bullies swaggering through history is not to become an even bigger bully. His answer is Jesus. In the wisdom of God, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, it is God's wisdom to outflank and to outfox the evil of the world through weakness. The eternal God of glory, the eternal God of light takes on mortal human flesh. He comes not to Jerusalem With trumpets announcing his arrival at the temple. He comes not to roam with military triumphs and parades. He comes born of a disgraced teenage girl in the backwoods. He comes born in a stable among not just barn animals, but amidst their dirtiness and their stench. The eternal God of glory. He comes with Angels announcing his advent to whom? To shepherds, the, the social outcast, the bluest of the blue collar workers of the day, with all of their accompanying, accompanying dirtiness and stench. The tiniest of the tiniest beachheads in the world, God uses to begin his invasion. Like the tiniest of mustard seeds, Jesus would later say. Think like a poppy seed, like a poppy seed muffin, about that size. You look at that thing and you think, that thing can't do anything. So small and so weak and so insignificant, you can't almost even see it. And not only that, but it looks like this mustard seed doesn't even do anything lasting. The seed, like this mustard seed, like bounced around Israel for three or so decades with some incredible teaching, with some love, with some miraculous gifts and healing and stuff. But then the mustard seed goes into the ground. It goes into the ground, and so we thought we'd never hear from this mustard seed ever again. Lost for all time and surely to be forgotten. But seeds are not rocks. Rocks are dead, and when they're buried, they are lost and forgotten. The we- but the weakness and death of Jesus that took him into the ground, carried the inherent power and life to finally break the power of all of the darkness. Had Jesus come with swords and with military triumphs and parades in Rome, then eventually there would be more sin, there would be more rebellion, there would be more darkness that would just keep rolling up onto the beaches of human history. More and more waves because of the storm out there. But through the life and death and resurrection, through the weakness of Jesus, Jesus calms the storm and he stops the waves altogether. Fully and finally, he solves the problem of the human condition. He solves the problem of human sin. And so we can look around at the world and think that all of the world's worst problems are all out there. Other people are evil and wrong There are systems and governments out there that are wicked and unjust. There is death and corruption. Yes and yes, and all of that is true. But in Jesus' first coming, he comes to work from the inside out. He comes to confront us that not only have we been, been wounded and been affected by evil, but we have contributed to it. He comes to disarm the power of sin from within. And for those who would trust in Christ this son to us who is given. For those who trust in his work on their behalf, he offers the forgiveness of sin. He offers the power of a transformed heart. He comes to rule and reign over a a people and a kingdom who are pushing back against the darkness through humility, just like their king, through suffering, just like their king, but through love, just like their king. And then, in his second coming, He will come again to finally and fully do away with all the evil out there. Lately, around our our dinner table, we've been talking a lot about government. We've been reading and thinking through uh, King Saul and David and Solomon and the long story short devotional. We've been talking about the American Republic and checks and balances and impeachment hearings and the like. And the other night I asked my kids what they think that the best form of government is. Of all the forms of government out there, which one's the best? And one of them said, "Well, it depends." I said, "It depends on what?" They said, "Well, it depends on the king." That's exactly right. Like the the framers of the American Republic, uh, they had a, a deep and clear understanding of the evil human condition, and so they attempted to create a system of government that would like spread out selfishness, spread out power, and they made a very clunky and inefficient government by design. It was a good thing, they thought. But if you've got a righteous king, and Toby, Toby, where are you, Toby Cook? You've got the right form of government, even though you've got a parliamentary monarchy. There you are, yeah. Uh, If you've got a good king, monarchies are the best. Why? Because you don't then incorporate all the inefficiency that our form of government has. If the king always does what is just and right, then you would want that. And this is the monarchy. This is the kingdom that the Lord Jesus has come to establish and to reign over. Of course, no man always does what is just and right, which is why we need a king who is more than a man, who is holy and pure and full of light. We need God himself to be our king and to rule over his kingdom. And so Isaiah sees all of it. He sees the past. He sees the present, the future. He sees all of it as a fixed certainty. The child king shall come. And then what happens? The second half of verse six. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, of his kingdom, and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and then forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The passion, the fervor, the zeal of God, of Yahweh, will do all of this. Like I, th- I think we can kind of sometimes think that God kind of just like begrudgingly wants to rule over these people who aren't all that great. I can think of myself as not all that great, and he kind of begrudgingly wants to be my king, wants to begrudgingly be my father. It is the zeal of the Lord that will do this. He is not disinterested from his people's suffering. God is not aloof or unaware of their anxiety, of their worry, of their fear. He will save them. It is his passion for them, his passion for his own namesake, his passion for the kingdom of Christ and of the world that will do this. He will make all things right. He will reign with them and over them as their good and righteous king, full of wisdom as a wonderful counselor, full of might as a mighty God, full of love as an everlasting father to his people, and full of the actual ability to end all of our troubles as the prince of peace." And so Advent draws us back in. Perhaps you might think, yeah, I believe that he once came. I believe that he has come to forgive sins and make things right and new. But then I I actually look around and consider this world and consider my life, and I actually wonder, are his promises really real? Does he actually exist? Because Isaiah 9 doesn't just drop from heaven as like a Christmas passage that we can sing along with and handles Messiah. Isaiah 9 is surrounded by tons and tons of context. Isaiah is pleading with King Ahaz to trust God, to trust his promises to the throne of David. Just love him and trust him. Isaiah is pleading with the king and he will hold you fast. It may or may not turn out exactly like you want it, but God will be good to you. He will be your peace. Trust him. Again, I'm just hammering over you over the head with Ray Ortland, but he says this in his commentary on Isaiah. He says, inevitably, God brings us to crisis. Inevitably, all of us. Sooner or later, this question presses itself upon us. If I put my trust in God, will he save me? Will he be true to his promises in the gospel when it really counts for me? Our answer to that question will either be an agonized struggle back and forth as we are unable to make up our minds or our answer will be a very clear yes. And the larger point that Isaiah is making is that people don't trust him as they should. And, because they don't, they pay a price for it. But his grace will have the last word on their behalf. The triumph of his grace over their failure. There are very real dangers out there. There is very real darkness. There is very real sadness. There is very real fear. And it's actually pretty easy to trust in God when things are going well. But that really isn't faith in God. That's just really... Faith in things going well. Faith in good circumstances. But it's when things are up in the air. It's when there's darkness and there is uncertainty and there is crisis. That we are then pressed in this moment of, will I actually trust in God's nearness? Will I actually trust in his goodness, in his wisdom, in his love? That's when actual faith is required. Or as the old saying goes, don't doubt in the darkness what you have believed in the light. God is good to us in times, of, to give us times of light, that we might be learning of him, that we might be encouraged by his people, that we might be growing in the spirit, so that when that inevitable time of crisis comes, we actually have something to stand upon. And yet, like Ahaz, we often don't trust in God as we should and we pay a price for it. If we're his, then this price isn't his anger, isn't his disappointment, isn't his embarrassment for us? But the price is is that we're missing out on the joy of the comfort that he longs to give us. when we doubt that he's able, when we start making plans that are left only to our own ingenuity or our own wisdom, not drawing near to him as father, not, Praying in earnest and near intimacy. When we turn inwardly, and that turn then turns into hopelessness, despair. We pay a price of our hope and joy beginning to like shrivel up like a, like a tomato in the refrigerator. And yet, His grace will have the last word on our behalf. The triumph of His grace over our failure. Or, as the great Christoph once said from Frozen 2, uh, my love is not fragile. This is an incredibly poignant emotion from Christoph. I think we might uh, attribute that to uh, the wonderful counselor, Mighty God. My love for you is not fragile. In fact, it it is very fixed, very secure. How do you know the first coming of Christ, his death on the cross, and of his resurrection. And so here we are, suspended in time, hanging on this side of Jesus' first coming, of his establishing the beachhead of his kingdom, and it growing slowly as God saves one sinner at a time and welcomes them into his kingdom. And maybe tonight is a night that you ought to be confronted by his first coming. Jesus did not come to make good people better, Jesus came to make dead people alive, for he came to make rebels of the kingdom to finally get to a point where they lay down their arms and come to him as their good king, that they may be adopted sons and daughters of God. And so maybe tonight is the night that you would actually lay down your arms, that you would have your sins forgiven, and that we would, we would just love to help you think through what that means for the rest of your life what it means to respond to God through Christ. But as we consider, and like Old Testament Israel, consider and look forward to his first coming, we are also then driven, driven into a remembering expectation. That, If you think about that, that sounds like an oxymoron, right? A remembering expectation. There's lots of stuff going on there, right? In which we know the promises of God to be true. He has come in the past as a child, He has lived and died for his people. He has lived and died for me. But life is hard. And it is. But he will come again. He will come again. And like Isaiah, we are time lords. He has given us a vision of the future. Since God has given us the end of the story, we don't have to wonder about whether or not the sadness will all become untrue. Like Ebenezer Scrooge, knowing the future actually very much shapes our present, giving us hope for the future, but also shaking us that this kingdom, this present life is not the life that we are to put all of our hope and faith into, that there is a life to come, a kingdom to come in which we are to hope. And so tonight we're going to end our service. We're going we're gonna to sing a, a, a new song that's actually an old song. We're time, lords. After coming to the table to remember that Jesus is Emmanuel, that he is with us, and he dwells with his people even here at the table, we're going to sing a song from the the mid-1700s called, Lo, he comes with clouds descending. This song is commonly an Advent hymn, but this hymn throws us forward into the second coming of Christ. In this time of Looking forward to Jesus's first coming, it throws us towards Jesus's second coming. Lo is just an old word that means look. And so we're telling each other, look, he comes with clouds descending. And so being time lords, we're going to sing to each other of a future event as if it is happening right now at this moment in the present. We're going to sing, Lo, he comes with clouds descending, once for favored sinners slain, thousand, thousand saints attending. Hail the king who comes again. Hallelujah. God appears on earth to reign. And I'm fairly confident that if we can get ourselves into a mindset of the future becoming our very present reality, that future coming of Christ will very much shape our present this week as we long for his first coming in Christmas, but even as we are filled with hope amidst the darkness and as we are shaken from putting our hope in this current kingdom. So let's do that. Let's pray for God's help. Let's enjoy uh, uniting together anew with Christ and uniting together anew with one another as we come to the table and then encourage one another of the future coming of our King maybe so. God, we pray, gracious and heavenly Father, that you would fix our eyes on Christ, that his coming might be the constant hope of our reality amidst the darkness, amidst the success, amidst it all. Help us remember that our current circumstances, good or bad, do not define us Do not give us ultimate meaning. Do not give us ultimate security or comfort. But the kingdom of Christ, which is fixed and secure, will give us hope, will finally give us peace. And we pray even now, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Pray that you would. In Christ's name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.